I um, I'm gonna I, I have the opportunity in a few weeks to go to Los Angeles for the weekend, and uh, I've been telling people I'm going to uh, the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday party. So it sounds like, wow, you must be really in close with the Dalai Lama. But I'm going with about 5,000 other people to the <laughs> Dalai Lama. You know, I paid for a ticket, too. So I didn't get an invitation. I bought an invitation to uh, an honoring of the Dalai Lama over the weekend of July 4th. And there are several days of uh, different uh, honorings that he's going to be doing. And, a friend of mine in uh, in uh, Washington D.C. called me a few weeks ago, and said uh, that everything is a Dharma story. You know, she said, uh, "Oh, I'll be out in California in a few weeks because I'm going to the Dalai Lama's birthday party." So immediately in my mind, what arose but the idea that how come she's going to the Dalai Lama's birthday party, not me? I'd like to also go. <laughs> so the, the, as soon as uh, I mean, it's a basic. Uh, dharma truth is a basic truth that the mind in contact with the pleasant uh, into the mind in contact with the pleasant desire arises you know two minutes before she said that I didn't actually I remember that his birthday is uh, in July as is mine and I remember that he's a year older than I am but I wasn't actively remembering it nor was I lusting after going but and I heard she was I thought, oh so I am going and uh, I, I was thinking about telling you that, and uh, both to make the point about how lusts arise in the mind. I don't think it's a, a, you know, I didn't immediately do something irresponsible. It's pretty responsible to go. And I'd like to see my friend. And then I was remembering that uh, I, I did uh, go to teachings with the Dalai Lama in... Um, Washington, D.C., either four or five years ago. It's probably four or five years ago, although I feel like it was a year and a half, but it's probably four or five years ago. And at that point, he was uh, doing a five-day teaching. And when I came home and I met my friend and colleague, Sally Clough, uh, she said, we talked about one thing or another, and I said, oh, I went to the... Um, uh, uh, I went to the teaching of the Dalai Lama in the Kali Chakra in uh, Washington, D.C. So she said, oh, great. She said, did His Holiness say anything new? So I thought about it, and I said, you know, he didn't say anything new. I mean, what is there new to say? You know, <laughs> He did a Kali Chakra initiation, and he, you know, he, taught, he taught fundamental Dharma. It's such a funny thing to say, did His Holiness say something new? But the, the same old, the, the point that I made at the time and that came up in my mind now is that the same old remains good, the same teachings about what's the cause of suffering and the possible remedy for suffering remains true. He did say something that I thought was new in the history of um, Buddhism in the world, and uh, as a matter of fact, and I think he'll probably say something like that this weekend as well. And wait, wait, did I bring the right piece of paper for this point that I'm going to make? 
He said, he said uh, speaking of religions, he said, it's not important to me that it, he said this to 12,000 people in an arena in Washington, D.C. He said, it's not important to me whether or not anyone is a Buddhist. You don't have to become a Buddhist. You don't have to leave your religious tradition or you don't have to, um, you don't have to take on a Buddhist uh, affiliation. He said, what matters to me is that people should be ethical. He said, what I'm really worrying about is that people have some connection to a, a tradition of ethics. And I was thinking, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit today, about how the practice of ethics, the, the practice of morality, is actually fundamental to the practice and development of wisdom. It's not apart from it. And how maybe it's even as fully a part of... Uh, spiritual development as meditation practice or study, the taking on of uh, an ethical life, and how that requires, I think, a commitment to really feeling the, the difficulties of other people, really taking them on as a responsibility for yourself. Many years ago, back in somewhere in the 1990s, I went to another initiation. I went to a bodhisattva uh, initiation with um, Kalo Rinpoche, who was then in his 90s, and it was in San Francisco in the Franklin Street Church. And uh, I remember him. He was an old, wizened man sitting up on a high chair in front. And he said uh, the church was all packed with people. And before he did the ritual that, people would respond to, recite after him, about taking on a vow to de dedicate oneself to the well-being <laughs> of all beings forever and ever. He said a few things. He said, first of all, don't worry about taking this vow because it's, it's a complicated thing to take a vow, be an initiate of a Tibetan lineage teacher because they become your root guru. He said, don't worry about it. I'm very old. I'm going to die right away, so don't worry about that. And I'm sure, I'm not exactly sure how he put it, but he said, don't worry about if uh, you, know, you have another religion. There's nothing about this that counteracts another religion. It's all about compassion. And then he said, don't worry about taking this vow because you think you're going to break it. He said, because you will. You keep on breaking it because we haven't arrived at a kind of perfected mind and heart state yet. He said, what matters is taking the vow because then you turn your attention in the direction of that and it, it sets a course for your mind that's different from not having taken the vow. Nothing will happen to you, but the vow then really orients your heart and mind towards where you want to go. So there were two things that I really wanted to talk about uh, to go along with that. Um, when you say when I said to Sally, he didn't say anything new. That you know what the Buddha fundamentally said was that uh, this experience of life is uh, uh, challenging. Always, I, I, I hesitate about saying life is suffering. Life is inevitably challenging because it's always changing that uh, suffering is the inability of the mind to accommodate the changes that happen, that peace is possible, and that there's a way to develop a mind that's able to do that, that that's able to keep its balance 
in a life uh, that's continually arriving with new challenges, arising with new challenges, pleasant and unpleasant. I was telling somebody yesterday about the um, uh, kind of poster, I suppose, years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, of Swami Satchidananda. Of course, this was not Swami Satchidananda. It wasn't a photo of Swami Satchidananda on a, on a surfboard, but it was a representation of Swami Satchidananda on a surfboard surfing. And uh, it said something like, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think that, you know, it's a, it, it was apt at the time, and that's what we've got now. I'm sure you were as, you know, we were all dismayed about that um, balcony in Berkeley that fell down. It's an impossible thing to think about. You know, at 12 o'clock, all those people were having a party, and at 12.30, five of them, now six, were dead. And, you know, they were standing on a balcony, and the balcony fell down. And it, I heard this morning that there seems to have, it seemed clear to the reporter on the news that I heard that the, um, the beams that were holding it had rotted because there was some leakage of water. So, in a, but it's a new building. It's only five or six years old. It shouldn't have happened. It, um, oh, should is such a funny word. It was not expected to have happened. It was not a badly built building that got built in a, in a, in a slipshod way, apparently. Oh, I don't know how anybody could have known about that. Uh, but whether they could have known or not could have known, these people are no longer living. And there's something about, I particularly remember, maybe because I don't know why, but it, uh, it was two years ago, I think, that that Asiana Airlines uh, flight crashed coming into San Francisco Airport. And I remember there were hundreds of people on that flight, but there were the people in the back, in the very back, uh, were, who died in the crash landing were students that had gotten selected to be in some special program in Berkeley. Um, maybe 10 years ago, uh, in the fall of the year, uh, a, a car out of control in Santa Barbara rode up on a sidewalk and killed four or five students who were freshmen at Santa Barbara that year. And every death is sad, but uh, I, they, they, they were particularly poignant to me. They stay in my mind because I think that all of those people were in the places that they were as a result of a very happy circumstance in their life. You know, I, I thought about the Santa Barbara people that six months before when they had gotten an email that said, congratulations, Sam, you've been accepted to Santa, UC Santa Barbara. They were excited. Their parents were excited. They probably had parties. They went out to celebrate if they had been turned down to Santa Barbara, sorry, we so many people applied, we can't take you, uh, best of luck, and they were going to someplace else, they would have been disappointed, but okay, they made the best, they went to someplace else. You don't know. The students that came from China had been selected out of who knows how many students. They'd been very, very happy to be accepted, and the back of the plane fell off. The students on the 
the Irish students having a party in Berkeley. Their parents, you know, they've flown them now. I heard last night on the news that they were awaiting the arrival of these parents. Can you imagine a few weeks ago, these parents, probably a few weeks ago, sent these people off if they came for summer school. And there they all were. And you don't know. You just don't know. And I was thinking that it's that particular understanding of suffering. It's been in and out of my mind all morning. I've been trying to figure it out. Earlier I said I had a confused, I'm thinking about way over, and I thought, no, that can't be right. But as we sat this morning, it's really good to sit. and straightens out your mind, you know. It's really good for you. I was thinking that what, what to do with that is to think that's really the understanding of uh, dukkha, that the first noble truth that life is um, uh, dukkha, which often gets translated as suffering and then misunderstood as suffering. Because not every, not every minute of life is, is agonizing or even horrible. I mean, we looked out this morning, we saw a deer with right, quite big antlers go by and um, majestic looking. And we we're talking to some of the grounds personnel there and they said, yes, there's a doe that's walking around with two babies that, you know, I said it was probably his, you know. So there are things that lift up the heart and lift up the soul. It is an amazing world, and uh, that there's a world is amazing. It doesn't uh, take that away. That there's a world is amazing, a world of beauty and amazement and music and art and kindness and goodness, and it's all contingent. It's all contingent. I, I sometimes wondered to myself at different times in my life, this is probably true for you as well. Different times in my life, uh, when one of my daughters was in second grade, I'm sure I've told you this story, on Laurel Grove Avenue where we live, um, a car out of control rode up on the sidewalk during the time that people were going to school in the morning and two little girls were killed. They were six and seven years old. One of them was a classmate of Liz, uh, the other one was a year younger, and um, I didn't know them. But I was so shaken to the core about that for a long time. I'm sure her family, these people's family was devastated, but I, I so, for years after that, when people left for school in the morning, and they said, I'll see you later. I really thought about that a lot, you know. We say to people, I'll see you tomorrow, I'll see you later, I'll see you next week. Who knows, really? Uh, it's all totally contingent on so many things that are way beyond our ken. You know, that... that um, I think, actually, that, that the mind actually, out of uh, some sort of survival mechanism does not keep that in full view for us all the time because who could go out of the house in the morning? Who could say goodbye to anybody? Or who could, you know, you can't do it otherwise. It must have some mechanism that keeps it from being front and center because what would we do? You could get terrified. Some people get so terrified. I was terrified for a period of time. I went through the motions of uh, saying, uh, you know, have a great day, I love you. 
I actually was, during a, that period of time, I was tremendously um, preoccupied, actually, with, with how, because how do people do this life? It's actually one of the causes, I suppose, of my beginning to do meditation practice. Um, sometimes, I, if I want to be lighthearted about it, I call it my uh, borderline melancholia. But it's serious. I have borderline melancholia, or not even borderline. I have melancholia. I easily think of what might go wrong. I'm also also easily cheered by things, so I don't live in that melancholia. But it always flits through my mind. What if not? Uh, I don't. I sometimes I think I wish I didn't have that. What if you know? What if it goes wrong? Maybe it makes me a kind person, maybe not. Maybe it makes me a nervous person. How do I know? Or, you know, I don't think of myself as a terribly nervous person, but I, you know, I am aware a lot about what might go not right. I got out, this is Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. You know, and for all of us, it's been otherwise. Uh, when I was a child, I worried tremendously about my mother dying because she had a, uh, uh, she had a heart condition, which nowadays you can go in the hospital and have them put in a mitral valve and come out the next day and live another 20 years. But, and she used to talk about that. She'd say, someday they'll figure out how to do that. And she said, they're even going to figure out, I'm sure, how to take out the whole heart and put in a new one. But they didn't know that then, how to do that. And I worried about her dying a lot. And actually, I made it into my 20s before she died. But uh, So maybe the borderline melancholia comes from anticipatory grief. But I thought that I would never get over the grief of her passing. And the grief passes. It's, it's terrible for a while, and then it's not. And... So we've all come through otherwises. I'm looking around at how old we are here, and probably many of us, who knows, maybe most of us, uh, who doesn't have any parent? Most of us don't have parents. Yeah, we're pretty old. Yeah. Living parents. We have parents, but not living. But all of those things happened, and here we are. But when I was a child, and even when I was a young adult, I couldn't imagine how it would be to be without somebody there. And then all of a sudden, there's nobody there but me. And, uh, and people are getting up on the bus so I can sit down. So you can see how you move along on that conveyor belt <laughs> into this world and out of it. <laughs> and how did that happen all of a sudden? The Dalai Lama is going to be 80 next month, and I'm going to be 79. How did that happen? I was a child the last time I checked. You know, that, that, <laughs> Uh, and is that poignant or is that just, it's just the way it is. You see, the Zen people would say, it's just the way it is. I remember saying to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, 
on, on one occasion where I was on retreat and practicing, and I was so overwhelmed with um, arising and passing away. I was so saddened by the fact that one day after another, the retreat was passing under my feet. So I looked forward to it, and then it was a quarter done, and then it was half done, and then it was three quarters done. And, we, and uh, I could watch the moon it was it become a full moon, and then it was waning again, and everything seemed so sad to me that it was all passing away. And I remember I said to him, quite sincerely, I said, it's so sad. And he said, it's not sad, Sylvia, that everything passes away. He said, it's just true. But you know what? I've decided over all the years, and certainly I think he's right, it's not sad. It's just what's true. But it's poignant. It's poignant. We get so many years of youth and so many years of health and so many years of this and so many years of that. And really that that first noble truth of its dukkha that everything arises isn't going to be there forever even you fall in love with somebody and you make a relationship with them and it lasts as i you know i have tremendous good fortune in that way that not only it lasted that we're both still living it lasted that we both still like each other that's actually <laughs> A, a very, uh, you know, unusual kind of a thing. So I feel very fortunate about that. But, you know, but we're old, so we're not the same as we were. And uh, and we'll be bereft of one another at some point, probably, unless something happens that we both leave this world at the same time. <coughs> it's not sad. It's poignant. It's poignant. It's terrible. That, yeah, go ahead. Maybe it's sad and true. Maybe it's sad and true. You know what? There's this other thing about my ongoing, that some of you who know me well, um, I, 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 from time to time I start to uh, pick apart some uh, often Zen teaching that because I say, you know, it's, it's almost true, but I don't like it the way it's written. I've said that about uh, the story of uh, Kisagatami, who was the woman whose child died and came to the Buddha and said, uh, uh, you're, a, you're a miracle worker, please bring him back to life. And the Buddha said, I'll do it. But you have to bring me a, a mustard seed from a home in which no one has ever died. So she rushes off, and of course she can't find a mustard seed in a home where no one has ever died, because everybody dies, and there are no homes where no one has ever died. And she comes back, having learned that lesson, and bows to the Buddha in recognition, and uh, apparently becomes a disciple of his. And I have wanted to rewrite the story to, she comes back to the Buddha and bows and becomes his disciple, and they both sit for a while and cry. I like that. That's the same as... You know that it's uh, it's sad and poignant and manageable. So I really I'm all right with that. I you know I I came to terms with I read another version of that story in which the Buddha in his omniscience knew that she would be moved to compassion for other people by going around the town, and that he sent her that not in a cold-hearted way but in a warm-hearted way. So now I like that story better. Who knows but who fixed up that story over the years or whether that story ever happened 
or whether it's a story. But it isn't always the dying part that's sad. Sometimes the living is, is sad. Um, you know, my father at 94, my mother, he was okay. And my mother was ill and just hanging on and hanging on. And he found that unbearable because he couldn't do anything for her. And he said to somebody, but he didn't want to live anymore because he didn't want to watch her. And he said to somebody, it's so hard to die. And about a day or two later, he got up in the morning, went into the bathroom, came out, was walking to the kitchen, and dropped dead. Mm -hmm. That was not sad. Mm -hmm. To be truthful, mm -hmm. I mean, we were sad, of yeah. course. But that was what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it was painless. Yeah. You know, the question, well, certainly he's an old man, and he was in pain, and so... Well, I mean, his mental pain about her pain. So, they, I mean, there's all kinds of... I, again, I would, th I would think again, Roberta, that the poignant is such a good word. It's so dear to think of two people who are in their 90s who've been together forever, who are still moved by one another's plight. That's very dear. That, that we make things dear to us is one of the things that I think is... Uh, I, th I think really is the contribution of centuries of Buddhism and of its uh, coming into a modern modern era. If you actually, if you read early stories about the Buddha, when he really was encouraging people to uh, leave uh, uh, lay life and become uh, monks and nuns, he uh, and give up relate renounce relationships. He said. Um, Wait a minute. Uh, painful, I guess it is. Painful are all conditioned things or um, something like that. Uh, let me think, let me think. Uh, there's, there was a very, I haven't said it right, but there was one line about all relationships lead to pain. And I thought, well, no, um, I think that's a culture bound. I think that had to do with the time. Uh, it was different. First of all, life was harder. It really was harder to talk about life as continually uh, suffering and difficult to uh, Westerners in a Western culture in an affluent part of the planet where so far, I mean, here we are at Spirit Rock. We couldn't find a place on the planet where we would be at this point in a better situation in all kinds of ways. So it's not as agonizingly day-to-day -day difficult but the pain in the mind when we lose somebody who's dear to us, I think is pain in the mind. It's the same as pain in the mind all over the world. I also think, and this is a very big piece of what I really wanted to <laughs> hope to come to, is that the pain in the mind... Let me start the sentence better. I used to think about, maybe we uh, rub it in too much about... Uh, no, starting the sentence over. When I first, when, 30 years ago, I was teaching um, Eastern religions at Dominican College. 20 years ago, I was teaching Eastern religions at Dominican College. And I began by teaching what the Buddha said about the suffering of life and that we are, uh, we, uh, 
birth is suffering, growing up is suffering, not getting what you want is suffering, being separated from what you got, which you did want is suffering, the whole list. And uh, the young students that uh, were just out of high school here in Marin County uh, were looking at me in a worried way. I remember somebody said, do Buddhists have birthday parties? You know, it seems like it's such a morbid kind of a preoccupation with suffering. They seriously asked that, do, do Buddhists have birthday parties? I said, yes, they do, you know, and they sell all of that. But, uh, but seriously, to realize it's not all agonizing, uh, that's not the right word, but it's all precarious. We go out every day not knowing. Every time I pass an a, 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 a accident on the highway, don't you think about, you know, if I had been here earlier or later or whatever. You think about that? If I'd been here 20 minutes ago, I would have been in this. I think about that. Or I think about the people at home who are soon going to get a, a phone call from somewhere saying, this is the highway patrol and I'm telling you this or that. Now, I don't think it's just because I'm morbid that I do that. I think it's just, maybe I do that more than other people. I don't know. Do you do that also? Yeah. I don't think that's morbid. I think that that's uh, awake to what's actually happening out there. I think it's a good thing because to the degree that I can see that, if I'm not paralyzed into inactivity, I think I am galvanized into acting with compassion in the world. I think what's supposed to happen is I'm supposed to remember that every day is a gift. And every day that I'm home or every day that I'm alive or every day that my people are not in trouble when I'm available to be on call for the rest of the world is a great thing. And I should use it, not just be scanning the horizon for when is the next terrible thing happening. I think if there's any reason to wake up at all, it's to realize this is the time to do something. This moment is the only one that we've absolutely got. And uh, to be a person who is in contact with other people and not afraid of that can talk about it with people. I've been learning how to talk about uh, uh, or not talk about the proximity of death from, uh, from having the pleasure of knowing people who are in our heavenly messenger programs here who are uh, like hospice workers. They go and sit with people who are uh, usually uh, in some site of going to be dying, but maybe just at home and uh, not able to go around and do things anymore. And what I've been learning from the few people that I've known is the importance of meeting people where they are. People want to talk about, uh, I'd like you to do this at my funeral, then you talk about that. If they don't, you don't talk about that. Even that I think to myself, I'd like to talk about that because it looks like, you know, I know I'm supposed to be online to do something about that. It's an interesting thing to see, to be with people. It's been very touching for me to be with people who have had long lives and um, are now coming to the end of it. And whether they look forward or whether they look back. But I've feel all the time that I'm with them that they're doing me such a gift to let me be with them. They're teaching me how to do that at that time. 
you know, I'll have to do it very well behavedly, you know, because people will probably talk about me, you know. <laughs> and it would be a very bad thing if they said the last minute Sylvia was a mess. <laughs> she didn't say all those wonderful Zen things that people said at the end. <laughs> I'm probably, even if I don't feel all those wonderful things, I'll fake it just for that. <laughs> one of my, one of my, one of my very good friends, uh, one of my very good friends, no longer of this world. This is a sweet story. She died of metastatic breast cancer some many years ago, but she was uh, battling it for a long time. And uh, when she first went in for surgery for it. Uh, uh, I waited with her husband for the, all the time that she was gone, and then she came back into the room, and then she woke up. And I said, you know, the nurses said that you were terrific, that as they were wheeling your gurney into the surgery, that you were so upbeat and uh, making jokes, and you, they, you made them all feel so good. So that was terrific. How did you do that? And she said, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly what she said since it's on a tape and it's going to go all over the place. But using a more colorful uh, epithet, <laughs> she said I was frightened to death. But instead, uh, but what good would that do them? So I, I figured, why not be upbeat? You know, I thought that's really good. You know, that I was frightened to death, but why not be upbeat? Make, make everybody else feel okay. That's really, does that touch you? Yeah, why not? Okay, let's go back and talk about Sally saying, did he teach anything new? There's nothing new. There are the Four Noble Truths. There are the three facts of how things are. Things are temporal. Things are contingent. And Really, our experience, our life is shot through with loss and disappointment and readjustment. Dukkha is true. Um, it's so hard to get that. It takes me a, a lot. It took me a lot to say, you know, it's too uh, heavy on the side of everything is lost. Everything is losing. We are losing everything. That's what I mean to say. But I actually think it's true, without being sad or morbid or terrible about it, that as we get older, you know, I, I watch the planet. Look and look what's happening to this planet. That my grandchild, who was born in 2000, will I hope live most of this century, and who knows what it's going to be like to live in this planet at that time? Uh, I could, you know, that's just a a, a fact. How to be able to live in the midst of knowing what's true about life experience, my life, our communal worldly experience, our experience with other beings, the experience of the planet. How to know all that and still have uh, courage to get up in the morning and do something and be cheerful about it. I, uh, I brought a... Um, where's my newspaper from... Just down to your feet. It's on your feet. It's on my feet. It is on my feet. This is uh, this is uh, just out of uh, the Sun the Sunday New York Times, and it had uh, different pieces of different. Everybody has been speaking 
at a, at a commencement. Everybody, there's all these hundreds of commencements all over the country, and they have commencement speakers, and uh, so I, and they have little snippets out of each person's. This is Samantha Power speaking at actually my alma mater. She's the United States ambassador to the United Nations. She says uh, it's not enough to find a job, which is, and she's talking to women because it's a women's college. Uh, true equality will not mean shedding our doubts or our self-awareness, but rather letting them quiet us when we should be speaking us. Wait a minute. It will not mean... I, I don't get that sentence. It is not enough to find our own voices. True equality requires that we learn to hear and lift up the voices of those whom others choose not to hear. This is my second point. You need to choose... Teach yourself to see the people and communities who live in society's blind spots. Of course, everyone should strive to do this, but as women who even to this day know what it feels like to be unheard or unseen, we have an additional responsibility. We have an additional burden. I was thinking that's a little bit uh, like the... uh, Reference in the Loving Kindness Sutra, just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. Maybe women in places of power will make a difference in the world. So I, I, I didn't bring this for Samantha Power. I brought it uh, because it re- I read all of them, and it reminded me of the Buddha's valedictory speech as he was uh, dying, at the, they say. The last thing he said was, <laughs> move into the future with confidence. I, I heard the other, the other definition of uh, the other quote, way it's translated is, uh, strive on with diligence but a more recent one, move into the future with confidence. I like that very much. Move into the future with confidence. Don't be afraid. So I want to spend just a little bit of more time on the development of ethics as the, um, <coughs> as the stage on which compassion and wisdom are... Um, Depend. There are ten. I'm going to do this. Everybody, find a partner. Just take somebody's hand so you know you've got a partner. That's a five-minute exercise. Five-minute exercise. Five-minute exercise. Okay. So this is this is what I'd like us to do. It is said, it is said that the Buddha, in the many lifetimes before he was Siddhartha Gautama, developed all these virtues of the heart, which enabled him, in the lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, to really realize his full vision of what it meant to be liberated. And the the ten traits that he was said to have fully developed were. Um, generosity, generosity, uh, generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, 
energy, truthfulness, uh, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. Woo. Wow. <laughs> uh, so I want to say that each of those is a manifestation of all the others. That's a, that's a theory that I have thought about a lot and that I like very much. But I want to bring out the particular point that developing each of those means keeping your attention on other people. When we, if you think about the three ways that we talk about developing uh, a liberated mind, we talk about developing ethics, developing uh, mind talents, being able to be able to focus the mind, keep it alert, keep it balanced, keep it concentrated. So those are mind talents. Uh, more uh, uh, ethicality, mind talents, and uh, understanding, which then builds on itself and uh, builds in oneself uh, more um, intention to stay on those developmental paths. It's like I said, Kala Rinpoche said, don't worry about breaking this vow, you will. But you're already pointed in that direction. So I want to go back to the development of ethicality and those 10 things. And I want to ask particularly the question, if you were developing, if your whole practice was developing generosity, in what way or ways does that clearly involve thinking about other people and thinking about yourself and thinking about yourself? In thinking about morality, how does it involve other people and how does it involve yourself? Because all of them, you could sit and meditate, and you could develop mental talents, but you don't have to think ever about other people. All of these involve you think about other people. So I want you to think about, but I don't want you all think about all ten. Over, let's see, uh, one, two, three, four couples here. You're going to be thinking about generosity. Over here, you're going to be thinking about morality. Over here, you're going to be thinking about wisdom. You can decide it however you want. Over here, patience. Over here, uh, uh, energy. Over here, truthfulness. Over here, determination. And you can choose either loving kindness or equanimity. And you only have three minutes to do it. So do it. And if you didn't get it, do something else.
You know, one of the things that, um, one of the lines that I really like in teaching is uh, when people, um, when people uh, finish reciting the precepts for how they plan to organize their life relationally, that they won't be hurtful to other people in any kind of situations, which I really uh, enjoy teaching about and will when we come back together again. The line that we mostly don't do is we chant all the five precepts about I'm not going to harm people by my actions or by my speech or with my sexuality or by taking things that aren't given to me freely. And then we say, I'm going to keep my mind clear so I can do all those things. And then there's a line after that that says, may these precepts be the cause of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I really think that that actually is a major teaching, that it's not like, wow, I have to knock myself out and become a good person. But they really are the cause of happiness. So, very briefly, because, uh, very briefly, that's all the time we have. Who wants to say about how is generosity? Joe, I saw you talking away. You must have something. <laughs> quickly, it's just, it's just so, generosity for me is, oh, gener um, generosity for me. No. Here we go. Uh, thank you, Annie. Um, generosity for me is just one of the most important, and and we were just saying that we can, you can so many different things, but just being aware something small of being aware of other people and giving your time for just a second to someone and and making a difference mm -hmm. and totally that one time we were sitting here and this person may be here where she said she was very she was on the verge of suicide and someone mm -hmm. spoke to her and said how are you doing mm -hmm. and that changed her life right. and so that really came up for us and then generosity within the family so that's great. I, I, I had not forgotten that. I, I didn't remember this context. Remember that? It, and it had been many years before. It hadn't just happened. So, generosity, morality. There you go. We started talking about morality and realizing that everyone has their own idea what morality is. And... Um, and we were talking about how um, the only way we can be is be compassionate toward others because we never know how our lives will be, how long they'll be. Um, anything else? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, we, we realized that, you know, even just coming here and people were talking about their pain and how... Um, you know, how many of you experience the same thing? And, and we all mm -hmm. connect with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was mentioning, too, when you talk about melancholy and sometimes I wake up in the morning and I go, oh, I got another day to go through. Oh, my God. You know, and will I make it through this day? I mean, I just feel so, you know, lots of things have happened and sa mm -hmm. sadness and, you know, maybe I'll make it through. <laughs> 
So but I don't and know how much that is. No, no, there's morality. no end. The, the, the point is there's no end to this talking. We're just going to go through it today just to make sure that there's one voice about each one. Okay, renunciation. Renunciation. Do, somebody do renunciation. Maria, were you a renunciation person? You're a patience person? You're a wisdom person. Okay, let Maria say the wisdom. No, 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 no. Um, <clears throat> we started. We started by talking about how wisdom uh, shines through uh, all the paramitas and how they're all holographic, as okay. you said, Sylvia. Um, and then we talked about um, how um, we each have that uh, well of wisdom inside of us. If we go inside, if we take the mo- time, the moment of stillness, and stopping and. Um, receiving what's inside of ourselves, uh, it's usually there, especially if we've had a spiritual practice for some amount of, of time. So how available wisdom is from inside ourselves and such. Thank you very much. So somebody must have said something about renunciation. People skipped it over. Okay, so we go further to wisdom. Patience. There you go. Patience, patience, patience. Yeah, I just, uh, we talked about how moment to moment you're challenged by patience in this life. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's somebody driving too close behind you, whether it's waiting <laughs> in line at the bank, whether it's waiting for the baby to arrive. I mean, it's every, so many moments of the day you're really challenged by patience. And to be able to approach those with equanimity is yeah. really, it's challenging. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely something to strive for. Actually, I have an idea. Uh, let's finish first. Thank you very much. I have an idea of a homework you could all do if you wanted to. So patience. Energy. 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 There you go. Anybody? Energy? We did energy. Yes. Okay, what do you want to say? You do. You guys, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the energy is. Um, how you how you appear in the world to others. You mm-hmm. can either manifest a negative energy or mm-hmm. a positive energy mm-hmm. and it's very easy to be inside yourself and always be thinking of your problems and what this does to me and how it affects me but if you open up to seeing the world around you um, and try and focus even a little bit of energy onto somebody else and how you can fix their problem, maybe really simply, that just turns the whole world around. It turns you around, and Mm -hmm. it turns them around. Mm -hmm. And they, in turn, have energy to be helpful to somebody else. Actually, you're really right about it takes you out of yourself. You know, all of them take you out of yourself. That's the whole practice, I think. is. Yeah, I do too. Okay, energy, truthfulness. Honesty. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. Go for it, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I just was, we were both reminded of uh, the fact that it's loving kindness is the subject of a practice in which you can develop loving kindness, which I thought was quite amazing. You know, you start off with somebody you like, somebody you like less, and eventually somebody you don't know, and finally somebody you actually don't like at all. <laughs> and somehow by doing this thing, you end up being able to like that very last person, which is pretty great. <laughs> and, you know, I've had this experience many times on retreat here because I've gone to many of the loving-kindness retreats. And what we were saying, too, was, that, well, okay, you do develop it. it. It's real. It's a real thing that can happen. And yet, after the retreat, and a few days go by, you're back to being yourself again. <laughs> but maybe, nonetheless, you are a little bit affected by it or you can bring it to mind on some occasions, so it's not a complete loss of that experience. No, really, really, really. So how about determination? Did somebody do determination? Yeah, they go, no. Everybody point to you, you. <laughs> Seagull, no? <laughs> no. Not yet. Okay, next time. Um, my determination is to continue on my path of learning how to love myself. And the realization with this discussion was that I also needed to turn it outward, that it doesn't need to be exclusive. Because mm. as I've worked on that, I feel like I'm cutting people out. So now mm. I'm back open to loving everybody else also. Determined. So you want a homework that you don't have to write down anything. You could just ponder until we meet again. Okay? So here it is. Suppose you were just going to take up one of those paramis and you said, this is going to be my whole exclusive thing. I'm going to take up uh, patience or I'm going to take up honesty. Uh, I mean, each of these has tremendous depths, you know. Um, and someone says to you in the elevator, how are you? And you say, fine, thanks. Is that, you know, maybe it's not, what should you do? What does honesty really mean? Uh, generosity, what does that mean to be able to be like the Zen poem where the, you know, the monk comes back and says, uh, and finds everything is gone out of his hut and he looks out of the window and there's got a moon, the whole moon there. And he said, oh, I wish I could give the thief the moon as well. Is that generosity or is, you know, what is that? Uh, if you had to say, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to pick out one of these and this one is going to be for me a representative of all the other ones or many of the other ones. This is the one that I could do in my life day to day as a practice. Pick out one and reflect a little bit on how would that change your life if you took it over. Um, I don't know which one I would take. But you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to change it. Don't do wisdom. Okay, because wisdom's the only strange one. It's a ringer in there. All those other ones are things that you do in relationship to somebody else. And wisdom is kind of a ringer in that list because you could quietly sit in a cave and be wise. You know, so that you pick out one of the other nine, okay? Okay, so we're five minutes over, so I'm sorry about that. And... Take good care of yourself, and we'll meet soon. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.